This uh, evening's message comes to us from Proverbs chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Proverbs chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Proverbs chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. Hear now God's word. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. An inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? It is a snare to say rashly it is holy and to reflect only after making vows. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love his throne is upheld. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Uh, Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, the Christian life is full of many gray and dark places Places where we know we are supposed to walk, but yet we're unsure of the exact path. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would shine the light of your word upon our path, that you would illumine our way from the beams of light that come from the the, the face of Christ, and that in so doing, you would show us where to go when we find difficult circumstances in our path, when we find ourselves at a crossroads, unsure which way to, t- to take, we pray that you would give us the wisdom of Christ to know how to choose and to choose wisely, that we may glorify you in all that we say, do, and think, and that you would lead us in the path of life everlasting. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think we could say that life's greatest question is a simple one. And it is this greatest question that says, do you trust me? Do you trust me? I think this is the question that God continually poses to us each and every moment of every day that we walk this earth. Do you trust me? More often, than that, more often than not, I think we're willing to trust ourselves, although sometimes we can even doubt ourselves. But we're all too often unwilling to hand the reins over to Christ. You know, how many of us, at least maybe decades ago, used to see the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot, which perhaps well captured the idea, I'm comfortable being in control, and God is the co-pilot, but I'm in charge, Right? And I can remember somebody at some point in my life saying, yeah, God's not supposed to be the co-pilot. He's supposed to be the pilot, right? Well, this is the subject that I think that uh, Solomon presents to his sons and to us. Do you trust the Lord? It's this question that God poses. Do you trust me? And as he poses this question, he does this upon two vitally important truths. He bases it upon two vitally important truths. First is that God is omniscient. He knows everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that we do. There's no place, no place that we can hide 
from his all-knowing and all-seeing eyes. This is the first fundamental truth that undergirds everything that Solomon says here. God is omniscient and he knows everything. Second is that God has drawn near to us in Christ and he has given us his only begotten son to save us and to rule over us, to guide us in life. So given these two facts, again, we want to pose the question, do we trust God? You know, think about this, meditate upon this for a moment, is that, you know, it's often the case that we don't know where to go, we don't know what to do, when given several options, when we're at the crossroads of life, we don't know which path is the right one to choose. And it's because we don't know what happens next. You know, how many times in life have we made a decision and wished, boy, I wish I could undo that one. I wish I could go back and go down the other road. But if we have an all-knowing God, then isn't he the best one to trust with our lives because he knows everything. There are no mysteries in life. Uh, There are no uh, questions that need answers because he has all of the answers. But again, one of the other things that challenges us when we are faced with difficult decisions as to which way to go, which way to turn, what decision to make, is that when we do entrust ourselves to the counsel of others, we often think, well, I'll trust this person, but maybe I won't trust them with everything. Maybe I'll trust them and I'll give them a little bit of information, but I won't give them all of the information. And yet, if God has given us his very own son, his very own heart to redeem and to save us, that he has held nothing back from us in order to give us eternal life, in order to give us the forgiveness of sins, in order to show us his love, then why would we hesitate to trust him if he has given us everything that he is in his son? So if he's omniscient, if he has drawn near to us in Christ, will we trust him? I think that's the question that Solomon poses this evening. And we want to give thought to this idea, do we trust him? And uh, we want to look at this under three headings. First, we want to recognize that God is watching. He's omniscient. He sees it all. Secondly, we want to note that if God is omniscient and, and he sees it all, then he's the one whom we have to trust And that means that, secondly, we have to have a humility towards the future. God may know it all, but we don't. And so we have to have a degree of humility and circumspection about the decisions and the plans that we make. And then third and finally, we have to be willing to trust God with his appointed means that he has given us in his life. In this, in our life, I should say. So God is watching his omniscience, humility in the future. God knows the future, we don't. But then third and finally, trusting God's means by which he guides us and sustains us in the decisions as we go along life's way. So first, let's think about God is watching and his omniscience. In this last section of chapter 20, Solomon ends the counsel to his sons by saying to avoid anybody who is a slanderer or a babbler. 
Anybody who is a slanderer or a babbler, and you see that there in verse 19, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a simple babbler. Now, in keeping with this theme, he continues in the vein of godly speech and its importance. And he says in verses 20 and 21, if anyone curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. An inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. And so the idea here is of a child denouncing his parents, in other words, using his mouth for ungodly speech, in order prematurely to gain access to his inheritance. Let's say he sees his parents' wealth, he does not want to wait for him to uh, to receive the inheritance, and so he says, I'll devise a plan to denounce my parents so that I can gain the inheritance early. In ancient Israel, one way to do this would be uh, falsely to accuse your parents of blasphemy, which would render them uh, guilty of the law and thereby guilty and, and prepared for capital punishment. Recall, this is how Jezebel deceptively gained possession of Naboth's vineyard. She got two uh, disreputable uh, fellows, the text says, to say that he had blasphemed. And then the Israelites put him to death. And so here it's this idea of the the child impatiently waiting and therefore sinfully denouncing his parents to gain his inheritance. And yet there's an important theme that Solomon highlights here. He says, an inheritance gained hastily in the beginning. In the beginning. In other words, he's saying, yeah, your plan may initially succeed. You may be successful in denouncing your parents. You may secure that inheritance early. So in the beginning, things work out. But notice there at the end of verse 21, he says, in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. In other words, things in the end, it will not work out as you hope. Things will not work out as you hope. Why? Because God is watching. You may fool the authorities, you may fool your friends, you may fool your family, but you will not fool God. He's watching, he's omniscient, he sees all, he knows all, he hears all. And so Solomon therefore continues to stress the importance of godly speech and he counsels his sons in verse 22, do not say, I will repay evil, wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. In this, key, in this case, we could say that evil speech leads to sinful actions. If desire for justice and vind- in the desire for justice and vindication, some people pursue vengeance against those who sin against them. Again, vengeance is not supposed to be a part of the Christian's arsenal because it represents a fundamental failure to understand the gospel. God could have justly condemned us for our sins. And yet, what does Paul say about God's mercy towards us in Romans 5 eight? God shows his love for us in this and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God didn't exact vengeance upon us. Therefore, why would we exact vengeance upon others? If we have received an outpouring of abundant mercy and grace, why would we seek vengeance against those who sin against us? Have we forgotten all that God has done for us in Christ? 
You know, this is what lies at the heart of the Lord's Prayer when Christ instructs us, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. In other words, we who have been in the position of receiving great grace have to be in the position of dispensing great grace. Yet, once again, I think what surfaces here is he's saying, trust God. Yeah, somebody has wronged you. You want to seek vengeance. But God knows. He's omniscient. He sees it. He knows what's happened. And in fact, we could even add to this, he's even ordained the events. Are you going to trust him? Or are you going to try to take vengeance into your own hand? And are you going to try to exact justice on your terms? Are you going to try to play the role of God? Now, this doesn't mean that we have to ignore or forget when people wrong us. But we do and must and should be willing to forgive. But we, get, we again, we have to be willing to trust God. Verse 22, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Trust him, is what Solomon is saying. And again, God is watching even when we think he's not. Look at verse 23. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. He brings up this theme again, this idea of the false scales, the false weights and measures. He knows that uh, the, the vendor who is using false weights and measures is fooling his customers. But Solomon is saying he's not fooling God. God is watching. Do you trust him? This is the point that Solomon makes in the following verse. In verse 24, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? God is watching, which means that he's watching the wicked when they wrong us, but he's also watching us. And in his wisdom, God directs our steps and our paths and ordains all of the events of our lives. This means that the only way that we can have any semblance of understanding the events of our lives, whether we perceive them as good or whether we perceive them as bad, means that we only can look through uh, the lens of God's wisdom in Christ. Do you trust God no matter what comes your way? And will you leave vengeance into his hands or will you try to take matters into your own hands? It's only once we look at life through the lens of Christ can we understand that God uses all and every single event in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. This is why Paul can say in Philippians 4 verses 11 and following, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That from one vantage point is a really tall order. You know, we can be content when things are going great. The Christian life is wonderful when things are going great. When people are complimenting us, when the checkbook register doesn't have a negative sign in front of it, when we're gainfully employed, when we have great health. But Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever situation I am. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the point that Solomon is is putting before us. 
In other words, it's not just when things are going well that we can say I'm content in Christ, but what about when things are not going well, at least humanly speaking? You know, I I think that sometimes it may be difficult for us to associate with what Paul went through, but he says there, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I suspect that most, if not all of us, never go a day without missing three squares. We get three meals a day. How might our disposition change if we were to begin skipping meals but it wouldn't be by our doing. If all of a sudden there was no dinner and maybe no breakfast and maybe a meager lunch, all of a sudden we very quickly would begin to question the the providence and the wisdom of God. Lord, I don't know what you're doing and I don't know if you see this, but I'm starving here. And yet Paul could say in such circumstances, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content. If we realize that we live quorum Deo in the presence of God continually, then we'll recognize that God is watching all the time and we'll seek to trust him all the more. According to one commentator, he says, in humility, lay our matters before the Lord, put them in his hands, wait on him and he shall save us. Revenge rises only because we have no faith. Tough words, but true words. Again, this is the, overall, uh, the overarching theme. Do you trust me? Do you trust me when things are going well? Do you trust me when somebody has wronged you and you seek and want desperately revenge against the one who has wronged you? Do you trust me? This brings us to our second point, which means humility in the future, because there's a sense in which, okay, of course, we have to trust God in the present, The present is all we have, but I was reading in a medieval theological work the other day that said that fear arises not so much in the present, but about ignorance of the future. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so we have a fear sometimes about the future. And so what we try to do is we try to make our plans so that we know what tomorrow will hold. It's like I just finished reading this book, uh, uh, and it was talking about different types of personalities, and the one type of personality is the responsible child. And I wrote up inside the book, because I typically write in all of my books, is uh, I said, me, question mark? Because I feel like I was the responsible child, mostly. And what it says about the responsible child is the responsible child likes routine. The responsible child likes order. The responsible child likes organization. The responsible child completes things. And then it said, but, and it was talking about dopamine levels, which I was like, okay, I don't know what that's all about. I'll just set that aside. But when it says that when the child is lacking sufficient supply of dopamine in the brain, chemical in the brain, and the child gets upset, then that ordinary effort to try to control things when things get out of control leads to anger, leads to fear, leads to anxiety, 
leads to stress. The reason that the responsible child is so responsible is because it provides a sense of order. But what happens when chaos caves in? When chaos overwhelms? Then it doesn't matter what schedule you set up. doesn't matter what plans you make. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, how many processes you set up because life comes in and rewrites your calendar. And so this is the point that it comes when we have to talk about trusting God is that how do we trust him for the future? Do we have an arrogance towards the future or a humility towards the future? And so Solomon says in verse 25, it's a snare to say rashly, it is holy and to reflect only after making vows. See, in this case, what Solomon is saying, he's saying, don't make rash vows, son. Don't make rash vows. Don't make a, a rash vow where you commit yourself to the future. Oh, yeah, sure, we'll do that for you. And then afterwards think, oh, no, I don't know if we can fulfill that obligation. So he's not, he's not counseling against making plans. He's counseling against making Rash, ill-thought plans. Think, for example, of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They sold a piece of property and gave back only a portion of the proceeds and then held a certain amount of the proceeds for themselves. And then they gave the, 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 the rest of the money to the apostles under the impression that they gave all of the proceeds. I think we could say that that's an example of a rash vow. Oh, sure, we'll give it all. And then all of a sudden they see the money and they think, hmm, maybe we should hold, a back, hold back a bit of it. This is, uh, you know, this is a lot of money. And in fact, this is the point that Peter makes. He says in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now listen to this qualification. He's not saying it was wrong for you to keep back a part of the proceeds. He's saying that it was wrong for you to lie. He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied, not lied to man, but to God. So in other words, the issue here is not that they held a part of the proceeds back from the, pro, from the sale of the land, but rather the issue is, is that they lied about it. They could have just as easily said, let's think about this before we act. Let's think about this before we act. And instead, they made a rash commitment and then later regretted it. And then they piled upon their regret, deception, and it led disastrously to their judgment. So what Solomon in simplest terms is saying, he's saying, think before you act. Don't make rash promises about tomorrow. So he's saying, be circumspect about the future. Be humble about the future. Be careful about what you commit for the future, which is uh, advice and counsel that James later gives in the New Testament in the fourth chapter of his book in verses 13 and following. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, he says. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears, but for a moment and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. So see, a humility is what Solomon is calling us to. He's calling us to a humility towards the future and a respect for the providence of God, a Christ-like willingness to submit our will to the will of our Heavenly Father. So he's not saying, don't make future plans. He's saying, don't make rash future plans. Think about the commitments that you make. But even then, when you do make those future commitments in a God-honoring manner, you always have to say, not my will, but thine be done, which is the mind of Christ. That means that we shouldn't make rash vows. Why? Because we know that God is watching and he'll hold us accountable to our word. But that doesn't mean that we should never make rash, or sorry, we should never make vows or commitments. Rather, we must make them carefully, wisely, and faithfully uh, so that we keep our vows even if we don't want to. What does Christ say in his Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, let What you say simply be yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. So be careful about the vows that you make. Be humble towards your commitments in the future. And if you make your commitments, keep them. But if you make commitments, understand that God and his providence may reorder your schedule. He may rewrite your plans. He may change what you think you would be doing and give you something else to do. And thirdly and finally, he calls his sons and he calls us to trust God and the means that he establishes in this life to guide us on life's path. In addition to trusting God in the present and in the future, Solomon calls us to trust in God's appointed means in this earth. In this case, trusting God to execute vengeance by the king's authority. He says in verse 26, a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. You know, remember earlier, just a few moments ago, he said, uh, just a couple of verses back, don't seek vengeance. Trust God. And not only trust God, but trust the matter into the king's hands, because the king will winnow out the wicked. You know, so often people think that they can get away with theft and with murder, deception and the like, because they carry out this this treachery away from the eyesight and oversight of human beings. But God is watching, and Solomon says he uses the king, he uses the governing authorities to reveal the hidden intentions of the heart. He says in verse 27, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. God uses his ordained authorities, kings, magistrates, judges, and the, uh, the police and, and, and all the different legal apparatus. He uses it, if you will, as his flashlight, says Solomon, to discover the intentions and the plans of man, both good and evil. Again, Solomon's point here, God is watching. But Solomon's counsel to trust God's ordained authorities has a line that begins in the heart of the king, but it ultimately terminates in Christ. He says in verse 28, steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love his throne is upheld. See, I think Solomon was telling his sons this, not only from the vantage point of, hey, trust the Lord, 
Trust the authorities that he appoints in your life, in this case the king. But he knew full well that one of his sons could eventually sit upon Israel's throne. And so he wanted his sons to rule with steadfast love and wisdom. And here, when he talks about steadfast love, it's a term that is often translated as covenant love. It's a term that is unique to the context of God's covenantal dealings with his people. And so in this case, what Solomon is saying is that his advice about love is not simply generic, have a warm, squishy feeling, uh, so that when you rule, you rule with warm, squishy feelings in your heart. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's thinking, we want to think about this in terms of God's covenantal charter with Israel. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment Christ tells us. So when he says the king has steadfast love and faithfulness which preserve him, and by steadfast love his throne is upheld, he's saying it's the king's love for God that upholds the integrity of his throne. Only a love for God and his law, therefore, would preserve the king and ensure that he would rule justly. Psalm 119, 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. So he's saying to to his sons, rule with steadfast love, a love for God, that this love would undergird your throne. Trust the king because ideally this is how the king will rule. He will winnow out the evil out of the kingdom. He will exact vengeance on your behalf. But a love love for God's law would also ensure a love of righteousness and justice as well as a love for one's neighbor. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. A steadfast love that undergirds the king's throne would not only be one that executes justice uh, upon the wicked, but it's also one that shows mercy and love to one's neighbor. Now, as we meditate upon this counsel, I think that there's, there's perhaps a nagging truth that rests and lies in the back of our mind that says we know that Solomon fell short of God's wisdom. You know, there are these, this, this indictment in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 6 against Solomon. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Of what good then is this counsel if Solomon didn't even follow it? Doesn't this elicit the retort to Solomon, physician, heal thyself? Why, Dad, why don't you follow your own advice? Well, we always have to remember that the Old Testament finds its fulfillment ultimately in Christ. And more specifically, that the wisdom literature itself points to the wisdom of God in Christ this is why Paul says there in Colossians 2, 3, that it's in Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures and the wisdom of wisdom. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, what, what Solomon is saying is he's saying, do you trust God's love in Christ? Do you trust him to judge the wicked who have wronged you? Do you trust him when things don't look good? Do you trust him when things go well? 
Are you entrusting your life into the hands of the king, King Jesus, the one who embodies covenant love and faithfulness, whose throne rests upon the foundation of his perfect obedience and suffering? So Solomon's final and ultimate call here is not just to trust in human kings, but rather to entrust ourselves into the hands of Christ himself, our perfectly righteous king. So the question yet comes again, do you trust me? Do you trust me? I know everything. You can trust me. Do you trust me? I've given you everything. I've given you my very own heart in Christ. Do you trust me? I love you this much. Do you trust me? I think we can say that all of life is a classroom where God is teaching us the same lesson. It's the same lesson over and over and over again. You could say that God walks into the classroom and he writes up on the board, do you trust me? In our hearts and minds, we always give a hearty, yes, I do. I'm ready. And then he begins to distribute quizzes. All right, let's see how well you do. And so we get a flat tire on the way to an important appointment. And we think, oh no, we're going to miss the appointment. I've been waiting for weeks for this day. We'll receive an unexpected bill and we're not exactly sure how we're going to pay it. And so maybe we pass the quiz and we say, all right, Lord, you've ordained this flat tire. You've, you've ordained this bill. Help me to trust you, to know that you will care for me, that you will help me figure out what to do here. But in other circumstances, when it comes to those quizzes, uh, to borrow a phrase from when I was in seminary, we'd say, oh, yeah, I flagged that quiz. <laughs> Flagging a quiz was, was code for, yeah, I got an F. I failed it. And I failed it miserably, where we give in to anger, we give in to fear, we give in to anxiety and frustration, thinking that by our, our, our anxiety, we can somehow add life to our limited days, thinking that by our anger, we'll somehow resolve the situation, or thinking by our anger that God will see how angry we are and that he'll fix it for us. But then God poses the same question again. We fail the quiz, and he says, okay, do you trust me? And then he passes out an exam. Not just a quiz, but an exam. You know, that's something that, in, in looking at the grades of my children, we look at their grades, which sometimes I think it's a bad thing. It's like in my house when I was growing up as a kid, you only saw grades three times or four times a year, report card time. Now you can look at grades any time you want. Uh, what's this? Why did you get this? Why is this here? Well, explain to me what's going on here. And the kids initially didn't understand that quizzes were weighted lighter than tests. Okay, don't worry so much about this. We can fix this if you do well here on the test. And so we get an exam that says, do you trust me? And we receive a bad medical report that tells us that we have a serious illness. And God says, do you trust me? Or in the midst of our suffering, we cave into anger, impatience, and frustration because it seems as if God is not hearing our prayers and we fail the exam miserably. 
All of life is a classroom where God continually teaches us the same lesson. And this is the lesson that Solomon has presented here. And it's a lesson that has pointed us to his faithfulness and his love in Christ. Blessedly, for every time we fail the exam, every time we fail a quiz, we can look to Christ who on our behalf has successfully passed all of the exams and the quizzes. Moreover, as we come to him and we say, O Lord, I failed this test. Forgive me, O Lord. Give me greater faith that I would trust you the next time a quiz or an exam comes my way. And we know that he will forgive us. I want to close with an anonymous poem written a number of years ago that I think aptly captures the nature of Solomon's point. It's called, A New Sheet, A New Day. He came to my desk with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. I took his sheet, all soiled and blotted, and gave him a new one, all unspotted. And into his tired heart I cried, Do better now, my child. A new day. I went to the throne with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day, all soiled and blotted, and gave me a new one, all unspotted. And into my tired heart he cried, Do better now, my child. Our prayer must be that by God's grace in Christ, through the Spirit, that he would give us the ability to trust him more and more with each and every passing day. And that in so doing, not only would we receive from the Holy Spirit that sense of peace and contentment that only comes through Christ and the gospel, but that we would bring glory to God, to our triune God in the midst of our lives, whether it's in times of plenty or in times of want. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for your love and mercy in Christ and for the wisdom that you give unto us. Father, forgive us for those times when we fail the tests, we fail the quizzes, we say that we trust you and we don't. We forget that you're watching and we try to take matters into our own hands thinking that you're not there. People wrong us and we sinfully want to take matters into our own hands. We make rash plans and commitments arrogantly about the future, thinking that we can decide and determine these things. Father, give us a faith and trust in you that we would trust you in the face of those who commit sin against us, that we would trust you when we want things but can't get them and that we would have to trust you in your timing, that you would grant unto us a humility towards the future, that we wouldn't make rash plans, and that whatever plans that we do make, that we will hold, hold loosely in our hands and that you would give unto us by your grace the mind of Christ that we would be willing and able and cheerfully able to say, not my will but thine be done. So that as we face each and every day, that we would do so with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts, that with each and every day, when we receive those tests and quizzes, that you would give us the grace to succeed, to give us the grace that we would have that peace that we need to say, yes, Father, I trust you. Yes, Father, do as you will. 
Yes, Father, I gladly surrender my will, my desires, unto your will. And that in this way, O Lord, you would conform us more and more to the image of Christ so that people around us would see more and more of Christ and less and less of us. We pray that you would grant this, uh, grant this unto us, not only for our sanctification, but especially for your glory. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.